Awesome stuff. Well, listen, we've been in a series, as Jenny mentioned, for God so loved blank, right? And uh, I'm hoping that we're now three weeks into the series that maybe you've got a couple of names that you're going to fill in there, that there's some people that you've been praying for. There's maybe some people that you've written in a bookmark or you're using that little workbook and uh, you're just being mindful of the fact that God doesn't just love the big ethereal world that is so big and out there that I can't wrap my brain around it, right? But God actually loves your neighbor and your coworker and your friend and your classmate. And, and really that's the purpose of this series is that we're trying to take this big thought that God who has created the planet, right? Created all of this stuff, who created you and I is a person God that actually loves your neighbor, loves your coworker, loves your classmate, and that we ought to love them too, right? That if they matter to God, they ought to matter to us, right? And so we're asking ourselves in this series, man, how do we posture ourselves? How do we get involved with the mission of God on this planet? Because God wants you and I to be actively involved with him to see people that are far away from Jesus come to know Jesus. And if you remember in week one of the series, uh, we took a look at the story of the Good Samaritan. And, uh, and really the heartbeat of that sermon was that oftentimes we look at kind of stories in the Bible and we oftentimes put ourselves as the hero of the story, don't we? You know, like in the story of David and Goliath, I'm David, right? I'm the one that overcomes my greatest enemy, whatever that happens to be. It might be my neighbor. I don't know. But but, but I, oftentimes we put ourselves as the hero of the story, but Jesus wants us to see ourselves oftentimes as the one that's in need of help. And we unpack that story that you and I, we're not, we're not just the Good Samaritan. We're supposed to become the Good Samaritan, but as the story starts, Jesus wants us to understand we're the ones that are actually in need of help. How many of you know, but for the grace of God, right? There go I, that we desperately need the grace of God. Ephesians 2 tells us that we would be dead on our trespasses, but God. And so we gather each week, keeping the gospel central, central to celebrate the fact that Jesus is the good Samaritan who has radically neighbored you and I so that we could be rescued, so that we could be healed, so that we could be delivered, so that we could become who we're supposed to become because of his work in us and through us. And then at the end of the story, he turns around and he says, now you go and do likewise. And so we're called to be good Samaritans. We're called because we've been radically neighbored by Jesus that we're not just to have a gospel message. We're actually, have, we also are to put into practice the gospel by being neighbors to other people, just like Jesus has been a neighbor to us. And at the end of that message, we, we discussed in week one, well, what practically could we do? Well, we could begin with prayer, couldn't we? We can pray for those around us. And so that was week one, Pastor David last week. How many of you enjoyed David Grigg last week? Wasn't that an awesome message about listening? <clears throat> you know, when you preach a message about listening, you feel like you have to sit up straight and actually listen, right? And uh, I loved it because it was just some great advice that we could learn and apply about listening. So we want to begin with prayer. We want to listen with care. And remember, he spelled out care and what that meant for us. And so this week, what I want us to do is I want us to explore this idea of how do you and I create spaces for conversation? How do we create spaces for conversation? With people that maybe are not like us, people that maybe we're not around that often. Man, how do we go about creating those spaces and places where conversation could take place? 
Oscar Wilde said that, that conversation is really the heartbeat or the central foundational component of any kind of companionship, whether it's friendship or marriage. And so we want to explore what does it mean for us to create spaces for conversation this week. Now, I have a question. And I do want to do a show of hands this morning, okay? So I know my wife was teasing us, teasing a couple of weeks ago that I, sometimes I ask a question, but I don't really wait for the answer, right? But, but show of hands this morning, okay? We're in church, so let's be honest. It's a good place to be honest in church, right? Well, let me ask you this question. How many of you have unfriended somebody on Facebook because they said something that maybe you didn't agree with, you know, about politics or maybe about religion. Oh man, hands are going up all over the room, right? Maybe, uh, you know, cooking, food, right? You didn't like that selfie of the food, right? How many of you have unfriended somebody on Facebook? Come on, let's be honest, because you didn't, right? Okay, how many of you know one person that you try to avoid because you don't wanna have a conversation with them? Anybody, right? Having conversation in the world in which we live is actually really, really difficult. In fact, it used to be to have polite conversation, you just had to follow the advice of Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady. What did he say? Keep the conversation about weather and health and you'll be okay. But I don't even know if that's safe anymore with climate change and vaccination status. I'm not even sure if weather and health are safe conversation topics anymore, right? It seems that we live in a world where no matter what the conversation, there's the potential for some sort of explosive argument or at least disagreement. So how do we create space for conversation in a world where there seems to be so much opinion, argument, and disagreement? How do we just relate to one another, sharing time with one another and enjoying conversation? It's interesting because Jesus, now remember, Jesus is described as the way, the truth, and the life. Have you ever met anybody that says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life? I mean, I've never met anybody. I've met some people that maybe think they are, right? I mean, that's a pretty sure thing, isn't it? But it's interesting to me that Jesus, who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life, seems strangely enamored with creating spaces and places for conversation. Jesus, yes, does describe who he is and does tell us who he is, but one of the things that we see in his life and his journey here on earth is that Jesus is constantly creating spaces and places for conversation. In fact, What's interesting about Jesus is that Jesus was asked some 370 questions during his time here on earth. Do you know how many of those questions he answered directly? Three. He was asked 370 questions and only three of them did he answer directly. Oftentimes Jesus, in fact 183 times, Jesus asked a question in return. What Jesus was trying to do was create a space for conversation to take place. Because Jesus was interested not just in the communication of ideas or truth or facts. Jesus was trying to relate to the people that he had come here to seek and save and rescue. And what we understand is that Jesus... I think, understood something about people and culture that we could maybe learn from. 
That maybe we live in a culture of, especially with social media, where everyone wants to proclaim and pontificate and share their opinion. But what Jesus seems to be doing is creating spaces and places for conversation, for the exchange of relationship, ideas, being around one another. As we heard last week, listening and hearing the heart of other people. And so how do we create places or our space for conversation? If you've got your Bible, turn over with me to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to look at one passage of scripture today, one story. And once again, I just want to unpack a few ideas from the story that we're going to look at this morning. And it's a story that you might be familiar with. So I'm going to leave us with one big idea today. And I'm hoping that this one big idea, this summer, we could put it into practice personally, as families, as a community, we could put this one big idea into practice about how you and I can create space for, congregation, or for conversation. Now, Jesus um, is on the way to the cross in Luke chapter 19. Uh, Jesus is heading back to Jerusalem. He's about to go the triumphant entry and, you know, the last, the kind of the passion week, and then he would eventually go to the cross. But on his way to Jerusalem, he passes through Jericho. Now, remember in week one, we talked about the story of the Good Samaritan, and in week one, we, we unpacked some of the kind of geography and the history of that story. If you remember that, that the priests, those that worked in Jerusalem, would travel this mountainous pathway back down to Jericho, which was about 18 miles, and we understand that, man, they would leave Jerusalem where they would kind of get, you know, they'd have worked maybe for the week, they would have gotten paid, they would have been, you know, I'm not saying they had money bags, but man, they were coming home with the wages, uh, and they were going back to Jericho, right? And so here is Jesus. In fact, this is the only time Jesus visits Jericho. And, and so Jesus is on his way into Jericho, heading back up that road to go to Jerusalem. So he enters in, and you know the story, uh, that he enters in, and uh, there's a crowd that's following him. He's become quite famous at this point. People are listening to Jesus. People are being healed by Jesus. You know, thousands of people are being fed by Jesus. The storms are stopping with Jesus. Like, this is the kind of person that you want to hang out with. And so there's this thrall or this crowd that's following after Jesus. And you know the story. Jesus comes into Jericho. And as he's going through Jericho, uh, he meets a man called Zacchaeus. How many remember the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. See, some of you grew up in Sunday school. Some of you are going, that guy's just weird. What is he talking about? But Zacchaeus was this wee little man, right? You know, uh, so he must have been Irish. <laughs> so he's a wee little man, right? He's short in stature. And, uh, and we know the story. You know, he climbs up into a tree to see Jesus. But, but to unpack the background a little bit, Zacchaeus is described as the chief tax collector. Now, that makes him the most hated man in Jericho. Because tax collectors, you see, Rome, the Roman Empire, had a problem with the Jewish population uh, that they now had in, in, uh, under their captivity, and they couldn't collect taxes. So the Romans came up with this brilliant idea, let's hire Jewish men to be tax collectors, and they can get the tax, which was about 20% from the Jewish population, and, and then they can charge whatever they want on top of that. 
And so many of these tax collectors were giving 20% or whatever to the Roman Empire, but they were taking another 30% so that 50% of your wages, remember, you've just left Jerusalem, walked the 18 miles back to Jericho, you're about to kind of just come home, and there's a toll booth right there with a tax collector in it taking 50% of your wages. Now, Zacchaeus isn't the person sitting in the toll booth taking the taxes. He's the chief tax collector, which means he has raised up and trained tons of tax collectors to take. And so he takes a cut of everybody. Zacchaeus is the richest man in Jericho, but he's also the most hated man in Jericho. And here comes Jesus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He'd heard about Jesus. Now, normally what would happen is that a famous person or a person who was really popular would have sought out the richest person in town and would have sent somebody ahead of them. A rabbi would have sent one of their disciples ahead of them to say, hey, listen, I'm on my way and I'm planning to stay with you the night. So make sure I have dinner and a place to stay. And man, this was a great honor. But Jesus didn't do that with Zacchaeus because Jesus had another plan. And so here he is. He comes into town. And uh, he sees Zacchaeus in the tree. Now let's read the story and read what it says. It says this in Luke chapter 19, just picking it up in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and he was rich, filthy rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus. So Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I want you to notice that Jesus, even though there's a crowd pressing in, even though Jesus is on a mission and a journey to get back to Jerusalem, Jesus recognizes the one and calls the one to come down out of the tree. Come on, we got to hang out together. We got to do dinner. He says, for I must stay at your house. Verse six, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Here's the tax collector receiving the rabbi joyfully. That ought to tell us something about who Jesus is, that even people who were almost the complete opposite of Jesus in terms of their view on life and the way they lived their life, they received him joyfully. Something's going on here relationally. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. In other words, all this crowd, remember all of the Jewish people that had been taken advantage of by this tax collector. What are you doing, Jesus? You're going to go hang out with this tax collector? Like, this guy's our biggest enemy. Why are you hanging out with him? We thought you were with us. And they said this, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus, so that what what unfolds or what's inferred in the story is that Jesus goes to Zacchaeus's house. And what would have happened here isn't just that, you know, they go share a coffee together or something. No, there would have been a meal. There would have been a place for Jesus to stay, Jesus to be refreshed, probably waking up the next morning. They would have spent a, a long period of time together. And so the next day or whatever it was, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. 
So here's Zacchaeus encountering Jesus. Jesus is going to spend time with him. He's, there's this moment of hospitality, of eating together, spending time together, creating a space for conversation, and something happens in the middle of that that fundamentally transforms Zacchaeus' heart and then the way that Zacchaeus lives. We read the text, and oftentimes we don't fully understand what's going on there. You know, well, Zacchaeus was stealing, basically. I mean, Zacchaeus, you've got to understand, is the guy that goes to little old ladies' houses and, and looks for the taxes and says, look, I know there's coins in the couch. Let's go find them, right? Like, he's that kind of a bad dude. And now, having encountered Jesus over a meal... He's now saying, if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to repay them. But I'm not only going to repay them, I'm going to pay back fourfold. Now, we read the text and go, boy, that's a big deal. I mean, if I'm Zacchaeus' accountant, I'm looking at him going, Zacchaeus, what are you doing? You can't afford to do that. But what Zacchaeus is doing is Zacchaeus is actually taking a vow of poverty. That's the vow that a bishop would have taken. In fact, some scholars believe that Zacchaeus actually became the bishop of Caesarea. And so something happened. A space is created for some sort of conversation to take place where Zacchaeus encounters Jesus and he's changed forever. It goes on and it says in verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he also, that is Zacchaeus, is no longer described as a tax collector, no longer described as a thief, no longer described as a sinner, no longer described as an enemy. Look how Jesus describes him. He's a son of Abraham. He's a man of faith. And then in verse 10, Jesus finishes it by saying that for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. How do we create places or spaces for conversation. I think Jesus shows us in this story and throughout the gospels, he gives us the key to how we create space for conversation. And I want to simply say it this way. Jesus practiced hospitality. Jesus simply practiced hospitality. He came to Zacchaeus in fact, Jesus most often did this because remember, Jesus didn't have a home. So Jesus oftentimes invited himself over to other people's houses. And so here's what I want us to do. I want you to invite yourself over to other people's houses. <laughs> Let's see how that works. But, but the point that I want us to just see this morning is this, is that the way Jesus created a space for conversation was by practicing hospitality. Look what it says in verse 5. And when Jesus came to that place, right, the place where he saw Zacchaeus, he says, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. In other words, what Jesus was saying here is, let's do dinner. Jesus is saying, I'm making myself available to you. I know that I'm on the way to the cross. I know that I have this mission from God, my Father, that I've got to accomplish. I know that there are all of these, maybe thousands of people that are hanging out around me and they're, wanting, they're hanging on every word. They're wanting me to do a miracle. They're wanting me to do something. But you know why I'm here? I'm here for you. I'm here to be present with you. And this is what Jesus, I think, wants us to do. Jesus wants us to be present with other people. 
I'm studying for a series that we're going to do in June, and, uh, and just realizing how busy and crazy we are as human beings in America here in the 21st century, and realizing that oftentimes we don't give each other the gift of presence. But you see, Jesus gave everyone the gift of presence. Jesus practiced hospitality so that he could give the gift of presence to others. And that's what he does in this story with Zacchaeus. What's interesting is that that's actually what Jesus, that's the method that Jesus actually employed to create space for conversation over and over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, you might not believe me, but it's really true that in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus is recorded as eating and drinking 94 times. In the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, I know I say it funny, Luke, how do you say it, Luke, 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 yeah, anyway, I'm learning English, it's a second language for me right now. Anyway, in the Gospel of Luke, 50 times Jesus is recorded eating and drinking. I mean, let's just look at this. Luke chapter five, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. In Luke seven, Luke seven, Luke Skywalker seven, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee, right? He feeds the 5,000 in Luke chapter nine. Luke chapter 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. Jesus condemns the Pharisees at a meal in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 14, he's at a meal where he urges people to invite the poor to their meals. And we're going to discover that that's what the early church ended up doing. Jesus and Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, the Last Supper in Luke chapter, uh, uh, Luke chapter 22, and then Luke chapter 24, the meal with the two disciples on the road to a mess. In fact, Ro- um, uh, Robert Harris says that in the book of Luke, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, in a meal, or leaving a meal, most of the book of Luke. Jesus was a foodie. <laughs> Who knew? right? And this is what we recognize. In fact, here's what's so interesting. Jesus' favorite title for himself is this phrase, the Son of Man. In fact, the Son of Man is first recorded in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, the use of that little phrase literally means this, the one who's come to rescue you. Or more accurately, the one who has the authority to rescue And so Jesus loved this title. He used it more, that title, more of himself than any other title. The Son of Man, the one who has the authority to rescue you. And here's what's interesting. There's only twice in the book of Luke where it says this little phrase, the Son of Man came. In other words, there's an indication about why he was here, how he was here. There's something that's descriptive about to happen. And what we recognize is that this phrase that's used twice in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, right, we recognize the mission of Jesus, right? It says that, we, we just read it, that the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save the lost. Jesus was clear about his mission. He was the one that's been given the authority to rescue, to seek, and to save lost people. But here's what's so interesting. The other time that that phrase, the Son of Man, came, is used in the book of Luke, is actually found in Luke chapter 7 and verse 37. And it says this, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. So Jesus' most favorite title about himself, the one who has the authority to come and rescue people, Right? He says that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That's his mission. 
But how did Jesus do it? His method, he came eating and drinking. In fact, Jesus was eating and drinking so much that his enemies described him as a glutton and a drunkard. Now we know he wasn't. But the point is simply this. Jesus employed a method of hospitality, of eating and drinking so that people would encounter the living God. And encountering the living God like Zacchaeus did, something happened that changed his life forever. Is it possible that as followers of Jesus, we could employ a simple method of eating and drinking with other people of creating a space where we could be with one another, where barriers could come down, and that, that as a result of that, they might encounter Jesus. Carolyn Steele, in her book, Hungry City, which, how food shapes our lives, she says this. She says, few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with who we share food is likely to be our friend, are well on our way to becoming one. There's a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. She's written a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And her story is that she was a tenured professor at this University of Syracuse in upstate New York. She was an English professor, and uh, she'd written an editorial, comment, uh, an editorial piece in a newspaper about promise keepers. She was uh, a lesbian, heavily involved in, in the LBGTQ community, and, uh, and so she had been studying evangelicals, she'd been studying in particular uh, promise keepers. How many of you remember promise keepers, those big men's events that would happen, you know? So she wrote an article that you can imagine was not, not a favorable article towards promise keepers, and so this was in the, in the newspaper, and I, I think it was a Presbyterian pastor uh, wrote Rosaria Butterfield a letter. And just it was the kindest, wonderful letter, and I read your editorial, and it caused me to think about a few things, and boy, I'd love just to have you come over and join my wife and I for dinner. Well, Rosaria, you know, you know she's like, no way, I'm not going to do that, you know, that's like, why would I do that, you know? And then she got to thinking, well, wait, I'm doing all this research. That would be great to kind of do this research on evangelical Christians. And so, yeah, of course. So she drives over and she's parked and she describes it. She's parked in the driveway and even wondering, man, should I go in or should I just leave? Well, she finally goes in and they do dinner together. And she ends up having just kind of a great time, an honest conversation and listen to one another. And, and uh, as, as she leaves... Uh, the, the pastor and his wife say, hey man, we'd love to have you over for dinner again. And this started a series of dinners. And through these series of dinners, she would encounter Jesus. She would give her life to Jesus. She would walk away from a lifestyle that, that uh, wasn't leading her towards Jesus, but leading her away from Jesus. She would end up marrying her husband and having two kids. And she's now kind of a, a Christian writer and kind of tells her story. She's written an amazing book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key because that's her story, that a simple meal or series of meals brought her to Jesus. And she said this, radically ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. Who would have thought that food could have that kind of an impact? But I want to suggest to you today that Jesus recognized something that we in, I think, modern day culture miss. That hospitality, eating and drinking together, creates a space for conversation 
and the presence of God and the possibility of the gospel to be at work in a relationship and in the hearts and lives of people. Isn't it true, I think it's Mary Douglas, an anthropologist, she said one of her observations about food is that food has oftentimes been used to divide people. Like if you think about the South, no blacks allowed, right, in certain restaurants. In England, it was no blacks, no Irish, that's me, and no food, or sorry, no uh, dogs are allowed in these restaurants. Even the Pharisees during Jesus' time would use food to divide people. But Jesus shows up and seems to break all the rules. Jesus shows up and he eats with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and people that are not like him. In fact, 94 times in the Gospel of Matthew, he uses food. He's eating and drinking with those folks, creating a space for conversation. Which, if you ask me, is absolutely brilliant on the part of Jesus. Because there was a 2017 study, and of course, how many of you know that science is oftentimes catching up with the Bible? And there was this study done in 2017 by the University of Chicago that studied people eating together. And so they had this kind of little exercise that they did where there was, uh, it was kind of a, a labor union negotiation wages or something that was going on. And so they just put people in a room uh, to negotiate a wage. And some of you, maybe if you're you know, in medical field or you're in those negotiations, you know, right? And that can get pretty contentious. Right? Anybody ever been in any of those kind of negotiations? Right? Like that can get that can get pretty contentious, right? Well, what they observed was that it was 7.3 rounds of negotiation for people to come to an agreement about something or to work out a solution to the problem. Then they took another group and they gave them all, and this is so weird, they gave them all the same food and put them in a room together, and it only took 3.6 rounds of negotiation for them to come to agreement. Who knew that food had that kind of an impact? Jesus did. Jesus understood that when you eat together, barriers come down. And so Jesus, to create space for conversation, practiced hospitality. And Jesus asks us to do the same. Makes sense. If Jesus, who's the visible expression of the invisible God, according to Colossians, if he shows up to reveal or re-reveal God to a skeptical, cynical world, the predominant way that he did it was through eating and drinking. And I know this maybe sounds really like, Gareth, are we really talking about food in church? And yet when I look at the life of Jesus, because Jesus understood his mission, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and the way in which he did it was he created practiced hospitality where conversation and relationship could be developed. In fact, the early church picked up the same practice. One of the things that you, when you read early church history, whether it's, you know, Emperor Julian or Pliny the Younger, man, those are some great names, aren't they? Like, you know, imagine naming your, your kid Pliny, you know, Pliny the Younger, which assumes, I assume there's an order. But one of the things in their letters that they would write, these are historical documents about the early church. One of the frustrations of the Roman Empire was the practice of hospitality in the early church. The early church would practice what Jesus practiced, and they would be hospitable. They would eat and drink. In fact, they would have communion together as a community, and then later in the day, they would have what they would call these love feasts where they would just invite neighbors to come in and to eat together, and something began to happen. Barriers began to come down when the early church practiced hospitality. 
It's why you, you, when you read the, the writings of the early church and the letters of Paul, he says, he says this in Romans chapter 12, 13, always be eager to practice hospitality. 1 Peter 4, verses 8 through 10, verse 9, it simply says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's the hard part, isn't it? Are we really having them over tonight, honey? I just wanted to watch that Netflix show, right? Like, no, 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 we gotta practice this stuff. Why? We gotta make ourselves available. We gotta be present the way Jesus was present. Hebrews 13, 2, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without even realizing it. In fact, the word, the Greek word for hospitality is made up of two Greek words, phileo and exena. Phileo, think of Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. So phileo is love, and xena, think of xenophobia, fear of stranger, right? So love of the stranger. That's the Greek meaning for hospitality. And this is what Jesus was doing with us. Jesus was inviting strangers into a place of hospitality where conversation would take place. And here's what happened. In the midst of that environment, that what happened was that strangers became neighbors and neighbors became friends. You see, when you invite people into a place of hospitality, when you open up your home to people, when you share a meal together, there's a couple of things that happen. Number one, you have to think intentionally about someone else. Imagine, we think intentionally about someone else, not just ourselves, right? Like, we consider others more important than self. Well, that's what happens when we practice hospitality. We also, uh, it shows care, right? It builds trust and intimacy when we open up our homes that way. And it leads to amazing conversations. And so Jesus practiced hospitality so that spaces could be created where conversation could take place. The early church practiced the same hospitality. And Jesus, in writing the New Testament and us reading it and being those who live out God's story the way Jesus showed us, ought to be those who also practice hospitality. Now, here's the challenge when I think of hospitality because of the world in which we live. Um, how many of you watch the Food Network or uh, HGTV? I'm a big HGTV fan, you know. I love that, that channel, right? And sometimes when we start talking about hospitality, we get it confused with entertainment. And somehow we think that we've got to be Martha Stewart, right? That we've got to put on this spread and kind of live this way, right? But maybe we don't, I'm going to give Matt, our bass player, the credit for this. He said to me this morning, you don't need to be a Martha Stewart, you need to be a Mary Stewart. Some of you are getting it, some of you will get it in a few minutes. Mary and Martha, remember the story of Jesus, right? And, and so there is a difference between hospitality and entertainment. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but on the screen, I don't know, there it is. There's a difference between hospitality and entertainment. In hospitality, we're focused on relationship, whereas entertainment is focused on creating the perfect environment. And oftentimes we think, oh, I don't have the home. I, you know, I, I'm not a great conversationalist. I couldn't do all of that. I'm not Martha Stewart. You don't need to be Martha Stewart. Just be Jesus. Open up the door. Let Welcome somebody in. Be present because you're focused on relationship. Consider the needs of guests as most important, right? Don't try to measure up to some sort of measure of success. Uh, be about serving and welcoming people, drawing them into relationship. Let this become a way of life. Give with no expectation of return. And it's inclusive versus exclusive. 
I go to Starbucks, or sorry, I go to Pete's. That was sacrilegious right there. <laughs> Don, that was sacrilegious right there. I go to Pete's almost every day. And uh, Don, not to embarrass Don, but Don's sitting in the front row. I see Don frequently at Pete's. And there's an older gentleman by the name of Jack that, man, he just hangs out. He's intentional just about relationship with Jack. That's hospitality. That's being intentional. We want to be those who practice hospitality. We want to be Mary Stewart, not Martha Stewart. This is what the early church did. And in the midst of that, then we need to remember the mission. You notice how Jesus closed this story of the story of Zacchaeus? You know, it could have been, you know, he described the story, and that's great. You know, Zacchaeus is all of a sudden not being a tax collector anymore. He's going to give away to the poor. That's a noble and a good thing. But Jesus, at the end of the story, reminds the readers of the mission. And the mission was, listen, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The reason that he practiced hospitality was because he wanted people to encounter the living God. And encountering the living God, the gospel could be at work in a human heart and transformation could take place. We need to be those who don't lose sight of the mission. And that's not easy in today's world. We live in a post-Christian world. We live, in other words, we live in a world that maybe isn't sympathetic to Christian values anymore. In fact, maybe it's not even just sympath- not sympathetic. Maybe it's antagonistic towards Christian values. And so it can be intimidating to open up your home to someone who maybe doesn't look like you, think like you, vote like you, you know, have the same ideology as you. And you would open up and practice hospitality and just be involved in a conversation with someone. That's difficult. But I want to look at Matthew chapter 5, and just out of the message, I'm going to close with this verse, and then we'll pray, we'll sing a little song together. But this is what Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 5, and I'm reading it from the message version, because I just love how it's described. In verse 13, it says this, let me tell you why you're here. Mission. Why? Why are you here? You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not just a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you, on there, on, uh, put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, a light stand shine, all mission. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, this is what I'm doing. You're here on mission. This is why you're here. And then look what he says in the next verse. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. You see, Jesus had a, had a mission to seek and save the lost. Jesus has invited you and I into that mission. He said, I've called you to be salt. I've called you to be light. I've put you on a light stand. I've put you as a city on a hilltop. I want you to shine, not to hide. How do we do it, Jesus? How do we? What's the method that we employ to accomplish this mission? I want you to be open. Open house. Be generous with your lives. Because by opening up to others you'll prompt people to open up to God.
when you open your home, when you share a meal with others, strangers become neighbors and neighbors have the potential to become friends. That's what Jesus did. Jesus practiced hospitality so that there could be a space where conversation could take place. And there was probably all kinds of things that they talked about, including the weather and health, I'm sure. But Jesus had a mission that in the midst of that relationship, as he began to be present with them and open up his life to them, they began to be open to this great and generous God who loves them. And now they experience it through others. And so I have a simple, really just call to action. It's kind of in the workbook that, you know, if you haven't grabbed one, I encourage you to take that out and kind of just flip over to the middle of the book. And this week, I just want us to consider that Jesus has invited us to a meal. You know that's why we share communion every week, don't you? Jesus has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. See, Jesus comes and he says, they can't condemn you anymore. I've invited you to my table. Come, sit, eat, but I can't afford to. There's milk and wine. Don't worry about it. The cost is covered because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has invited you and I to a meal. And now he's saying, you go and do likewise. Invite others to the table. Invite others to a meal. Because in that place and space, when you are present with them, when you open up to them, they will begin to be open to the presence of God who loves them. And so that's what I want us to put into practice. You see, we, we say as a church family, we're going to live out God's story. Which means we don't just believe it, we actually live it out as a church family. Well, how do we do it? Well, we do it the way Jesus showed us to do it. How did Jesus do it? He practiced hospitality. You too, go and do likewise. And so there's a really simple practice. And we're going to go back in and sing a song uh, together. And then Jenny's going to come and we'll close in prayer. But I want to ask you this week to take some time prayerfully to take the word that was shared this morning and to say, Lord, who would you have me practice hospitality with. This summer, who should I have over as a barbecue? Maybe there's a few of your neighbors, you're just going to be, man, I'm going to create space for conversation. I'm going to invite over for a barbecue or a meal or just kind of hang out for some drinks or go, go grab coffee together. Whatever the case might be, I want to ask you to put into practice what Jesus taught us, what the early church and the writings of Jesus teach us, that we would be those who practice hospitality. How many would go, I think I could do that. I don't need to be Martha Stewart. I can be Mary Stewart, right? And so here's what I want us to do. Can we just stand together? And let's just respond in our hearts. We'll sing this song. And Lord, I just pray that, Lord, as we close today, that, Lord, we would be those who recognize the mission and the method. That, Lord, we would take the time, Lord Jesus, in a busy, crazy world, Lord, to create space for conversation. So many of us have been the recipient of that with you and with other people in this room. Lord Jesus, they've created space to be present, to listen, to have conversation. And in opening up our hearts, in opening up our homes, Lord, we're giving an opportunity for people to be open to the presence of Jesus. So Lord, help us.
be that in Jesus' name. Amen.